the voice of reason, the voice of alarm, the voice of stats, the voice of scouts, the voice of Kool-Aid, the voice of dismay, the voice of Davo. And I think I speak for all Royals fans listening right now when I say this about the first half of the season. Thank God it's over. It's Davo, and I'm glad you're along for another edition of Your Dish right here on Clubhouse Conversation. This is the first half wrap-up here of The Dish on the place where we catch up with all your favorite current and former Royals players. And I hope if you're a recent listener of Clubhouse Conversation, you've gone and listened in the archives to different former player interviews we have. Over 100 different former Royals have been spoken to here on this website, including our hit and run section. Click on hit and run at the top of the website. If you don't have time to listen to a full interview or maybe you're looking for one that seems interesting, go through and hear some of the highlights from different interviews and perhaps you'll find one that you want to listen to the full thing with. All right, so that's here on clubhouseconversation.com as are hundreds of hours of current Royals interviews as well. Most recently, we spoke with Cal Jones of the Lexington Legends just last week and more coming up throughout the summer right here on Clubhouse Conversation. But let's talk about the Royals in Kansas City and the first half of 2018. And let's be honest, not too many people want to talk about this current club as it is. And I can certainly understand that. The Royals, though, and I'm kind of being facetious, but I'm kind of being serious. The Royals are locked in the middle of a, an important race. And I'm not trying to be a jerk here, but... At this point, wouldn't you take the number one overall pick? That's a question I pose to Royals fans quite often. And it's, it's not something where you want to see them go out there and just lose every night because I don't think I'm down for that. But it's something where you're not going to lose any sleep over it, right? Like you want to see the young players that are going to be here make strides in the right direction, right? You want to see Brad Keller continue going forward and Jorge Bonifacio and uh, Alberto Mondesi, and you know it's great seeing Danny Duffy the last what eight ten starts going out there and doing what he's doing. You go up and down, you know there's seven eight players on this roster that could conceivably be a big part of the next core, and so those guys you really want to see do well. But outside of that, my secondary thing is the draft pick, right? So you know one versus two, I think it's likely the Royals get one or the other. The way things look, nobody in the National League is going to catch the Royals or Baltimore. For worse record, I suppose the White Sox have an outside shot, but a nice little lead on both the Royals and the Orioles. So it's likely either Baltimore or KC gets the number one draft pick. And we're going to talk here in a second about how much it matters getting the number one draft pick versus the number two. I did a little bit of data the last 10 years. Very unscientific, but something interesting to look at here. But before I tell you my findings about having the number one overall pick versus having the number two overall pick, what do you think to yourself right now? Come up with your own hypothesis in the next 30 seconds here. How important do you think it is having number one versus number two? Because we know in baseball, it's very rare to have a Bryce Harper. I can't miss number one. You know, It's not like the NBA with LeBron James. It's not like when you look at a franchise quarterback in the NFL. In the NFL and the NBA, you know, rookies that are drafted come in the next year and can be all-stars, can be complete franchise changers. That's a lot more difficult in baseball. It's a very unexact science for the most part in the first round. A lot of times the number two pick or number four pick is no better than the number 21 pick. Now, there is a big difference in talent between your top five, top 10 guys versus your 25 to 45 ranked guys. I'm not saying that, but baseball, you know, is maybe not quite as easy to predict. In fact, it's not quite. It's obviously not as easy to predict as, as football 
in basketball as far as the next level. So when I ask you how important do you think number one versus number two is, what are you thinking right now? Do you think this is a very important thing that you really want the Royals to get the number one pick, or do you think it doesn't really matter? Well, let's go over the last 10 number one picks. We'll start with 2006 and go up until 2015, because I think anything past 2015, you can't predict yet what the difference was between one versus two. Even 2015 is, is pretty difficult, as we'll talk about here in a few minutes. But going through 2006 to 2015, now 2006 also was the Luke Hochaver year. The Royals have the number one overall pick. That's the last time, of course, they had that in 2006. They took Luke Hochaver, and going second was Greg Reynolds. Without a doubt, Luke Hochaver was the better selection of the two. And Luke Hochaver went from a failed MLB starter in a very disappointing number one overall pick to a guy that helped the Royals get to a World Series, helped the Royals really win a World Series. I mean, the way he did, he was part of that, you know, missed the 2015, missed the dog pile. He always talked about with the elbow issue, but make no mistake about it, Luke Hochaver definitely salvaged his career and, and salvaged that number one overall pick as far as I'm concerned. The Royals got a ring out of that. So in 2006, I think the number one overall pick, without a doubt, him versus Greg Reynolds, Hochaver had a much more beneficial MLB career to his team than did Greg Reynolds. 2007, kind of interesting here, David Price versus Mike Moustakis went number two in 2007. And this is kind of how I envision this rebuild. We've been talking about it here. Normally I have Clubhouse Conversation Insider Jake Lutz with me, and we talk about this is year one of the rebuild. It's year one of probably a five-year rebuild, realistically. And I expect the Royals to start competing by year five of that. But, you know, year one is kind of the year you lose 100-plus games and get that number one or two pick. Year two, maybe you or in the upper 90s, and you get a top five pick. And then year three, some of the guys start showing up. Year four, most of them are here. Year five, pretty much all of them are here. That's how I kind of look at a five-year rebuild plan. So the Royals right now are in year one. This could be their year to get the number one overall pick. Then next year, hopefully, you don't have number one. In theory, you have a top five pick probably next year. But David Price versus Mike Moustakis, it didn't really matter that much in 2007. I'll still give David Price the edge obviously because of success he's had and being a stud starting pitcher. So David Price, probably a better draft pick than Mike Moustakis there, right? 2008, the number two overall pick was actually better. Pedro Alvarez has made an all-star team. Tim Beckham has never quite lived up to his potential in 2008. 2009, not even a contest. Steven Strasburg, number one, versus Dustin Ackley. The Mariners took him number two. Don't believe he's even on the MLB roster this year at all. Dustin Ackley came up through that Mariners system. But Steven Strasburg, a slam dunk in 2009. 2010, Bryce Harper versus Jamison Tyon. Remains to be seen how much of an MLB career Tyon will have. He's been spotty, battled injuries, and obviously life uh, life injuries. I believe he had testicular cancer as well. So he's been through a lot of things. Hopefully he continues to do well, that being Jamison Tyon. But we keep going here. 2011, number one was obvious. Garrett Cole versus Danny Holson, who had two shoulder surgeries. This year, signed a minor league contract with the Cubs in March. 2012, Carlos Correa versus Byron Buxton. Maybe Buxton will start hitting one of these days. He's showing signs, certainly, this year. But the guy that can run like the win, Correa, though, the obvious there. 2013, Chris Bryant was the number two pick. Who's better than Mark Appel at number one? And then you have draws in 2014 and 2015. You have Brady Aiken in 2014, who had Tommy John surgery. Tyler Kolek, and then 2015, both guys could have very nice major league careers, Dansby Swanson and Alex Bregman of the Braves and Astros, respectively. So I kind of went through it kind of quick, but the way I look at it, the last 10 drafts, the, or excuse me, not the last 10, from 2006 to 2015, those are kind of the drafts where we can kind of tell 
The number one overall pick had a better major league career six of the eight times with two draws. The only two times the number two, the only two times the number two pick was better than number one was Chris Bryant over Mark Appel and Pedro Alvarez over Tim Beckham. The only one, the only one that was really a, a huge deal was Bryant over Appel because you could even argue Alvarez didn't have that great of a career himself. So, but that kind of illustrates, you know, people say it, it doesn't matter if you get number one or number two, and I tend to kind of agree with that. But certainly, if you're going to lose 112, 113, 115, 109, whatever it is, games, you may as well get the number one pick at that point, right? And as of this moment, there's two or three guys you hear. As likely number ones, of course, with the Royals' luck, there probably isn't a slam dunk, you know, must-draft guy at number one. Bobby Witt Jr., maybe the leading candidate right now. I remember his dad pitching for the Rangers back in the day. He had a great fastball. So anyway, when you talk about the Royals and their, and their losses in one versus two, don't stress too much is what I'm saying, but it certainly wouldn't be a bad thing if the Royals do end up with the number one overall pick. So Now, talking about some of the key guys in this rebuild, well, one guy in particular, and I got to give props to my boy Alex Duvall on Twitter for this little nugget, but Alberto Mondesi since June the 26th. Can we talk about this guy? He's 23 years old. This guy is still so young. I know it seems like he's got to be like mid-20s by now, right? Because you think about him debuting in the World Series a few years ago, right? But he was 20 back then. The guy, or maybe even, was he 19 then maybe? 19 or 20. But now, since June 26th, and again, thanks to Alex Duval for this. Since June 26, 308, 549, 857 for Alberto Mondesi with three home runs, three stolen bases, and 51 at bats. This is a guy who we talked about in the last dish with Jake Lutz. The hard contact off the bat, he hits the ball hard when he makes contact. The strikeouts are a problem. You know, the Royals want him to bunt more, which you can kind of argue that either way. You know, use his speed. It's a good thing, I guess. Get on base more. On the other hand, you don't want to take away a guy's power and gap ability and and all that. But I don't think it's a bad thing if a guy can bunt for hits. I don't really understand the criticism the Royals took for that comment recently. But, I mean, this is a kid who is so young and has so much potential. I mean, defensively, some of the plays we've seen him make, the arm strength on this kid from the hole is fantastic over there at shortstop. So, Alberto Mondesi is going to be a very good player for the Royals. And I know the Royals are very concerned about him staying healthy, and that's the reason they say that he's not playing literally every single day up here right now. But I do think you'll see him up there, you know, about three out of four, four out of five games in the second half, especially now that the Royals have shown an ability to take Alcides Escobar out of the lineup completely a couple of games. That streak ended at 421 games, in case you're living under a rock. Roselle Herrera, a guy I was very excited about, our last dish, and I still am. Has cooled down, obviously, and then was on paternity leave this weekend. Congrats, you know, congrats to him and his wife on a very healthy addition to their family. And also, good timing for him getting a full week, right? Getting the three days off this weekend and then plus the All-Star break. And So congrats to the Herreras on the birth of a child. Jorge Bonifacio coming up and picking up right where he left off. It was such a massive disappointment on many levels, but especially having him in the field with his bat and what you know he, he can do. We saw him do it last year, the nice, quick, short stroke. He professional hitter, a guy that can reasonably hit you 20-plus home runs for several years to come. Definitely a guy that could be a, a key part of this next wave, especially because, I mean, some of these guys that are up here now, I get it, they're going to be nearing free agency when that five-year mark hits that I just talked about earlier, you know, guys that are one, two, three years in. But you also got to remember when – 
you know, you're, you're not going to have your Alex Gordon twenty million dollar contract at that point. You're not going to have your Ian Kennedy fifteen million and Danny Duffy fifteen million and Jason Hamill six million. And you know, you go through some of these guys. You know, those contracts are all going to be gone by the time the Royals are ready to compete. So you can easily sign a few Bonifacios or Mondeses or whoever might starting to be expensive with arbitration in free agency at that point. So certainly because of his age and ability, Bonifacio could be a big part of the next wave of Royal success up here. Now, congrats to Salvi. Got to give him a little shout out. And, you know, somebody else made a good point on Twitter today. Some Royals fans are apologizing and almost mad that Salvador Perez is making his sixth straight All-Star game, including his fifth start after Wilson Ramos got the injury. Salvi will be starting, most likely hitting ninth on Thursday in D.C. And some Royals fans seem to, I mean, justifiably so, would like to see Whit Merrifield in the All-Star game. I think Whit had a snub. There was about four or five good snubs, though, in the AL. It wasn't just him, in fairness. But certainly, I think Whit Merrifield belonged on the team, yes. But you can't be upset for Salvador Perez, who's the best chance you have at a Cooperstown Royals Hall of Famer anytime soon. I mean, you get a World Series MVP, a guy that's already started five All-Star games at catcher, six straight appearances. Only George Brett has started more All-Star games, nine for the Royals, so second in franchise history. A guy that, if he has two or three more monster seasons at catcher and maybe sticks around and contributes at the very end, you know, of his career when the next wave gets here. Certainly has a chance at Cooperstown someday. I don't think I don't think that's a, a bad thing. I mean, we, we all know Yadi Molina does, and Salvi's in that same level, especially when you look at their comparative ages at this point of their career. So I, I don't think it's a bad thing at all that Salvi gets in, but I find it interesting. The Royals fans are kind of mad about that, but they were all about Omar Infante and laughing about that starting, you know, when he was having a much, much worse season than Salvi. So Royals fans and all fans are fickle, I suppose, right? All right, so let's get to the back half of the dish here and kind of look at the first half and where we're going. So at this moment, you got to think the Royals have two guys that will be traded at the deadline for sure, right? And that's Mike Moustakis, Lucas Duda. I think there's no doubt those two are going. Now, you know, I would put the over-under on this. Vegas never likes to do whole numbers, so two would be the real over-under, but two and a half would probably be the over-under you would get in Vegas with the under being heavy. You know, like the under would be like minus 180 for those who understand gambling, and the over would be something like plus 160 or something. But, you know, Mike Moustakis, Lucas Duda, I think, are are shoe-ins, barring an injury to be traded. I do think there'll be a third trade. I think somebody else will get dealt from this team. I don't know exactly who it'll be. I don't think Whit Merrifield's going anywhere yet. Unless the Brewers or somebody, the Phillies, somebody that really wants to go all in. I mean, we see in Milwaukee with some of their offseason acquisitions. They're going for it. You can't blame them. You know, unless somebody really wants it right now, I just don't think the Royals are going to get enough for Whit. And they're, I mean, he'll have just as much value, if not more value, this winter and the same time next year. Really, the next two years will have fairly similar value because he'll still have two plus years before he hits free agency even two years from now so more value now obviously I'm not saying that but not a guy that you have to trade unless you're blown away so I don't know that that's going to happen I don't think Danny Duffy's going to happen I just there's too much left in that contract and there's too much ups and downs there's still half that deal left I don't see that happening obviously Salvi's not going to happen I think the Royals wanted to trade Brandon Maurer which is why they brought him back up a few weeks ago that ship has long ago sailed and he won't be here by the end of the year I wouldn't think so he's not getting dealt. I mean, bullpen pieces are always in demand. 
pinch hitters or guys you can use in the platoon. Remember the Royals brought in Johnny Gomes and they brought in Josh Willingham and some of these other guys. Those are the kind of guys, like Lucas Duda is kind of like those guys, maybe a little bit better because he can still play more so every day than those guys could at the time the Royals got him. Remember when they brought in, um, who was that guy they brought in? The left-handed first baseman, Carlos Pena. Remember that? I'll never forget that at bat against Detroit in a key game. And that guy took three fastballs down the middle with a 3-0 count with like a runner at third and one out, and the Royals lost a game. Do you remember that game? That made me so mad about that. Anyway, I do think there'll be maybe a third trade. I don't really know exactly who it would be, though. I mean, no one's trading for Escobar, I wouldn't think, unless there's some emergency. You know, those are the kind of guys, though. Escobar, like a backup catcher, like Butera, but he's not good enough defensively anymore. I mean, he's got the experience. I guess he's well-liked. I mean, there, there's just I feel like there's going to be somebody else dealt from this team. I just don't know who it is yet, but there we go. All right, so first half MVP offensively, we talked about it already with Merrifield. I want to talk about Brad Keller. And is this sustainable for him? Because we saw him get roughed up yesterday in Chicago, right? Is it sustainable? First half and only about the last, what, I think he's five, six starts in now. 3.13 ERA in 63 and two-thirds innings for Brad Keller. That's fantastic. I mean, before the White Sox game, it was like about 2.56. So it jumped about a half a run up to 3.13 after that game. And a guy that gets a ton of ground balls, the stuff is really good. I watched one of his starts sitting crown club two, three starts ago. It's just out of his hand how crisp and it looks heavy. And I know that's a, sub- a subjective term, but it, it just looks good out of his hand. It looks different. He misses barrels. But the thing that concerns me, well, two things. Number one, the 27 walks in 63 and two-thirds, maybe a bit high there, but just 36 Ks. That's that's not great news. I mean, you know, four and a half Ks per nine is, is not great for a starting pitcher in the major league. So it makes you wonder, is this sustainable? You know, a part of me thinks it is because he's still so damn young, younger than Mondesi even. Just about to turn 23 and – Getting a lot of ground balls, he misses barrels, and he's still going to get better, right? He's got he's got a great build and a great kid. So I don't know, but I do think he's the first half MVP. What's his ceiling? Probably realistically about what it is. Probably like a three, three and a half, number three, four type starting pitcher. But that's extreme value if you get him and Jake Junis. And again, these these two, him and Junis, could easily be a part of the next winning Royals team. And if you have those guys as your 4-5 type guys established, like like think like Jeremy Guthrie when he had a couple really good years for the Royals. Think about him or like a Jason Vargas or Bruce Chen. When some of those guys had really good years, and I'm not saying bad Vargas, Guthrie, or Chen. I'm saying when they were good for the Royals. Imagine if you had that for a few years with this core because the age will correspond. That's extremely valuable. Then you bring in your Jackson Coar and your Brady Singer and your Daniel Lynch and you know, some of these other starting pitchers, maybe Josh Stalmont can, you know, put it all together like he has for a, a good part of this year. You look at all these different guys the Royals have coming up, and all of a sudden those guys become pretty darn attractive. Now, the biggest surprise of the first half, to me, if I'm going to the biggest surprise, it's got to be Brad Keller again. Biggest disappointment of the first half, Ian Kennedy and Jake Junis. Now, Jake Junis started off lighting the world on fire. Until about mid-May, as you remember, one of the best starters in the league the first month and a half. I mean, we were thinking all-star there for a bit, right? But I I put them in a tie for biggest disappointment because they both ended up with the exact same ERA in the first half. They're both in the DL, obviously, which is not good. Both should be back soon. And in the case of Junis, he'll make his next start right after the all-star break. And I would think Kennedy, I don't know, they they may send him out on one rehab start in Omaha or something. I don't know how far he is, really. I'm thinking within 10 days, though, of coming out of the break, he's back. He may just come straight back. We'll see. 
Didn't work so well last time, so I think they might give him one or two rehab starts. But but both have a 5.13 ERA. Kennedy, for what he's making, 5.13 is just not going to do it. And he's been so durable throughout his career, so it's disappointing he's on the DL. But the 5.13 is the big deal. 18 home runs from Kennedy. Junis, 24 home runs allowed with his 5.13. I never would have imagined him just getting lit up like a Christmas tree, start after start after start after that first month and a half. But like I said, he'll make some adjustments. Perhaps the back, you know, whatever, the legs. I mean, who knows what's going on. Something wasn't totally strong with him. And with pitching, as you know, one thing's off and you start using different parts of your body that you shouldn't be and putting added stress on them, and that's what happens. And I think the Royals will continue to work with him. He's so young. I think he's going to be fine. I think he's going to be a really good 3-4 tight major league starter. And, again, you get that out of him and Keller. I'm liking that a lot with some of the pitching the Royals took this year in the draft. Finally, what will Casey's record be after game number 162? Will the Royals catch the modern record of the Detroit Tigers, the 119, the losses? No, they won't. The Royals will lose 110 games, though. There's no, no doubt about that. I mean, to lose 100 is pretty much a guarantee. The Royals will have to basically play 500 from here on out. That's not going to happen. So what will Casey's record be, my opinion? I've got a couple tweets about this at Royals Clubhouse. 50 and 112 is what I'm going to go with. And my gosh, that's depressing to say out loud. You know, and, and I feel so stupid. Me and Jake Lutz right here both thought the Royals would lose around something like 87, 88 games this year. We both thought they were going to push 75 wins. We both thought they were sub-500. We also made this prediction before Nate Carnes went down, before Salvador Perez went down, before Jorge Soler went down. I mean, you can go on and on. And we didn't see some of the things happening that have happened. We didn't think Ian Kennedy would be this dreadful or that Danny Duffy would be awful the first month and a half of the season or that Jason Hamill would be even worse than last year. Although he did have, in fairness to him, some very good games, most notably that game at St. Louis at Bush Stadium. But, you know, there's certain things you look at up and down, and you just didn't see some of the stuff happening. So, but man, I've, I've never been so off in a prediction. But, I mean, who saw this team losing 112 games, though, right? Nobody. I mean, some people, some people thought we were too positive. I mean, people, I think some people thought we might lose 100, maybe, but I think most people thought the Royals were going to be somewhere in the mid 90s. I believe Vegas had them at 64 and a half. 65 and a half was the over-under. So Vegas had him losing 97 or 98. So I don't think anybody saw anywhere near this bad of a baseball team. But that's where we're at. And that's kind of your first half wrap-up here on Clubhouse Conversation. I miss my boy Jake Lutz, Clubhouse Conversation Insider. He's got some a, a big softball tournament he's playing this weekend, so he couldn't join me here. I wanted to get something up here going into the All-Star break. That's where we're at. I mean, not too much more to talk about with this first half. I mean, do you really want me to even talk about anything anymore? There's not that much more to talk about. If you have any questions, as always, hit us up at Royals Clubhouse. We'll be back here again in a week or two with some more looks as the second half gets going. And and one thing I will tell you, I will be seeing the Wilmington Blue Rocks in the next couple of weeks. I'm making the trip out to Wilmington for a couple of days, so I'll give you some nice scouting reports on some of the guys there in Wilmington. That's coming up here. More interviews with current Royals players, both KC and the minor leagues as well, when I get back from my Wilmington trip. And, of course, in the offseason, former Royals players interviews as well. Like I said, please go through the website, former Royals players interviews, current Royals players interviews. Find something that look good to you, and if you want to be teased on – Maybe you're, you're like, well, I like that Ray Palacios interview. That Mike Sweeney looks good. Oh, maybe I want to listen to this one here uh, you know, with Whitey Herzog. Go through on the hit and run and click on the players and hear the five big highlights from each interview. And that'll give you, you know, an idea of which ones you might want to listen to and spend the hour with. Because a lot of them are about an hour, 45, 50 minutes long here at Clubhouse Conversation. Have yourself a great week. Go Royals. And we'll talk soon.